Now, last week in the Gospel of Luke, we saw that Jesus entered Jerusalem to the shouts of praise and the misunderstanding of the Jewish leaders. He weeps over the destruction of Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple and makes known his heart for the nations. And, and if you remember, our text ended last week with the Jews seeking to destroy Jesus. Chapter 19 ended with the Jews seeking to destroy Jesus. And if that is how they felt at the end of chapter 19, the beginning of chapter 20 is only going to intensify their hatred of Jesus and their desire to kill him. Let's look at the scripture in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. On one of the days while he was teaching, the people in the temple and preaching the gospel the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they're angry because Jesus accepted praise as he entered Jerusalem. They can't let that go. They're really angry because he wrecked havoc on their business venture there in the temple. So they thought, who does this man think he is? Let's go find out who he thinks he is. So in verse 2, they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or who is the one who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are? Who gives you the right to come in here and turn our tables over in the table? Who gives you the right to come in here and rebuke us? Who gives you the right to come in here and correct us? Who gave you the right to do the things that you are doing? Verse 3, Jesus answered. But he didn't really answer. But he answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him then? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus lets their question roll right off of his back, and then he asks them a question of his own. Who, whose disciple was John? What do you think of John's baptism? Was this of God? Was this from heaven? Or was this just from men? And they knew immediately that if they said from heaven, they would have to then say, we know who you are, we believe who you are, we support who you are, and we embrace who you are. Because John had said, behold the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Here is one whose shoes I am unworthy to untie. I don't need to be baptizing you, Jesus. You need to be baptizing me. They knew all of that. So if they stepped into Jesus' trap and said that the baptism of John was legitimate and from heaven, they would be having to testify that Jesus is truly who he said he was. But if they said that John's baptism was not from heaven, they were going to be in trouble with a whole host of Jews who had gone out to John to be baptized, some estimates by the million. So Jesus asked them a question that puts them between a rock and a hard place, and he shut them up. But he wasn't done. He was like a boxer who had backed his opponent into the corner. And there was no referee to separate him. And now that he's got his opponent backed into the corner, he unloads on them. He doesn't stop the assault. He unloads on them. And he unloads on them with a parable. 
And we've seen parable after parable in Luke's gospel. And, and we've defined a parable as a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. And every time that Jesus is told a parable, he's had to step aside and explain that parable because people didn't understand what the parable meant. But in this case, this parable is unique because it needed no interpretation. The Jews, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they all knew exactly what the meaning of this parable was. It's a parable with four main parts. The first part is built on trust. Look in verses 9 and 10. Now that he's got them backed into a corner, he began to tell the people this parable. So he's turning his attention to the people away from the chief elders, away from the priests, away from the Jewish leaders, and he began to tell the people this parable in their hearing. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. Time out right there. There were some tenants who had been given great trust by the planter of this vineyard, by the owner of this vineyard. These tenant farmers are kind of like contract farmers, kind of like what we would know of as sharecroppers. They don't own the land, but they rent the land. And they're not renting the land on a monthly basis. They rent the land by producing a crop, and out of the crop that they produce, they give the landowner a certain percentage of their earnings. This would be decided on ahead of time. Everybody would be happy. The landowner is making some profit off of his land. The vineyard, the vineyard workers really have the best of everything because they have the freedom to work the land the way they want to work the land, but they don't have to pay the land note. They don't have to pay the property taxes. They don't have somebody like a boss looking over their shoulder telling them what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. They can do as they see fit. They can produce the crop. They get to keep a large percentage of the crop produce for themselves, and then they give the agreed-upon percentage to the landowner. It's really a good deal, but it's a deal that is built on trust. At the appropriate time, the landowner sends a slave to the tenants so that they might give him some of the produce of the vineyard, which leads to the second point of the parable, and that is persecution. We move from trust to persecution in the latter part of verse 10 through verse 12. It says, but the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And that Greek word for beat him means they, they didn't just punch him, they beat him all over his body, as, as if they tied him up and lashed him all over his body. And they did not pay him what they owed him. And at this point, every person listening to the story, every Jew in the crowd knew that that vineyard owner had every right to come to his vineyard, to call in the authorities, to cast out these tenants, and to have them punished. And that's what he should have done had he been truly just. But he was truly merciful. So in verse 11, he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty. Here again, this slave comes and they beat him again all over the body, but then Jesus adds that they treated him shamefully. And the Greek word for shamefully here is where we get our English word for traumatized. Does that give you an idea of what they did to this servant? Their persecution intensifies 
And surely now the landowner has every right to come in and prosecute these tenants, cast these tenants out, have them punished for their crimes. But instead of doing that, in verse 12, we see that he proceeded to send a third. A third servant. And this one also they wounded and cast out. This owner is extremely patient. He's giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to do what is right. He's very merciful to send a new servant, a second servant, a third servant. And they just keep throwing it right back in his face. And I think this is a good point in time for those of you who may be sitting out here under the sound of my voice and you can look back over your life and you can see opportunity after opportunity after opportunity that Jesus Christ has given you to hear the gospel message, to hear the good news, to be confronted with eternity and to turn from your sin and to put your faith and your trust in Him. But you choose to zone out. You choose to go your own way. You choose to abuse the servant. Sooner or later, the mercy will run out, and it could be today. If you're sitting here and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and He has not totally revolutionized your life in a way that your family knows it, in a way that your friends know it, in a way that your community knows it, if He has not turned your life upside down, if you have not repented and thrown yourself upon His mercy and grace, hear the servant one more time come to you and plead with you to respond to the gospel message in repentance and faith. Throw yourself upon His mercy before it's too late. This could be your last chance. We see the tenant's persecution of the planter's servants, but it doesn't stop there. The third part of this parable in verses 13 to 15 is not trust and not persecution, but murder. Verse 13 says, The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. This time, the vineyard owner does not send a servant. He sends his son. What grace to send his son to such wicked people. Surely they would listen to the son. But no, they took it even further when he came and they killed him. According to the Jewish Talmud, if three years went by and no one laid claim to land, it reverted to those who were working the land. So maybe when they saw the sun coming, they assumed that the owner of the vineyard had died and had left the vineyard to his son, and now his son was coming personally to collect the debt. And they reasoned in their minds, if the, if the owner's dead and this is the son, then we can kill the son and we'll lay low for three years and the property will be all ours. So they murdered him. The planter's great patience, mercy, and grace was met with murder. These tenants have moved from trusted stewards to persecutors to murderers and thieves. Which leads us to the fourth part of the parable in verse latter part of verse 15 through 19 and its judgment. This is what we've all been waiting on, right? These people are about to get what they deserve. In the latter part of verse 15, Jesus says, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Keep in mind that Jesus has a captive audience, the disciples, the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders. 
The planter has trusted his vineyard to tenants. The tenants have broken the trust three times by beating his servants, traumatizing his servants, casting his servants out and refusing to pay up. Finally, they have murdered his beloved son. And Jesus asks the question, what is the owner going to do to these tenants? Now, what person in the crowd doesn't know the answer? What person in Jesus' crowd doesn't know the answer? It's a simple answer, right? It's an easy answer. But there was silence at Jesus' question. Nobody answered his question. So Jesus answers his own question in verse 16. He will come and destroy these vine growers. Is that surprising? Anybody here surprised? He'll come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Now notice the response in the latter part of verse 16 by the Jews. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. And this may it never be in the Greek language is the strongest negative possible. If it was translated literally, it would be like this. No, 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 never, never, never. Now, why would they say that? What kind of lunatic would say that? These people have broken trust. They've broken the agreement. They've abused servant after servant after servant. They have murdered his beloved son. What kind of person would say, no, 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 don't punish the tenants. Don't cast them out. Don't give the vineyard to someone else. Why would they say that? This is what everybody would expect to happen. Look in verse 17. Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. And they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. Those that were represented in the parable became very clear to those who were listening. The man who planted the vineyard was God himself. The vineyard that was planted was the people of Israel. The nation of Israel. The tenants are the Jewish people, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders. The servants sent to the tenants are a picture of the prophets. And the Son is Jesus Christ Himself, who they were planning to kill at that very moment. And just like those tenants were trusted with the planter's vineyard, Israel and its religious leaders were given a great trust, a great stewardship as well to preserve and proclaim the truth of His Word and to advance His kingdom. But what did they do? They turned inward. They became self-centered. They became arrogant. And then when the prophets came to hold them accountable and call them to repentance, they beat the prophets. They shamed the prophets. They cast the prophets out. They rejected them over and over throughout history. The history of Israel, the prophets are met with hostility. Matthew 23, 29-31, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you built 
the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. In Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Acts 7, 52 and 53, Stephen, as he is about to be stoned by the Jews, says, Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Listen, the Jews were the tenants. Israel was the vineyard. The Father is the one who gave the vineyard to them and left them responsible for the vineyard. And rather than turning outward and accomplishing the mission that He had left them to accomplish, they persecuted the prophets. And they were, at this very moment, the most ironic thing in the whole story. They are right then planning to destroy Jesus. They're saying, no, 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 never, never. This could never be true. And at the same time, they're thinking about how they can kill Him. They were thinking we would never kill the Son of God and then they turned around and went right after Him. The Jews turned inward to build their own kingdom for their own prosperity, for their own prestige, for their own pleasure and comfort instead of advancing the vineyard owner's kingdom. And we think how foolish... But how about us? How about us right here, sitting in this grassy spot? Do you know that Romans chapter 11 tells us that the kingdom was taken from the Jews and it was given to us, the Gentiles? When Jesus said they tried to kill the son and, and, and he was going to punish them and he was going to take the kingdom and give it to others, you know what happened? In AD 70, Jerusalem was leveled by the Romans and the kingdom was given over to the Gentiles. Us. That's the teaching of Romans 11. And how today, in 2021, Western culture specifically, are we different What do we live for? Look at your life. Look at yourself in the mirror and answer the question, what do you live for? I could go on a guess and I could say many of us live for prosperity and possessions. Our life goal, make the best grades we can in school so that we can get a scholarship, so that we can go to a reputable university, so that we can get good grades at the university, so that we can get a degree, so that we can get a really good job, so we can make a really lot of money, so that we can buy really nice clothes, really nice shoes, really nice cars, really big houses, living in the best neighborhood in town, put up a lot for retirement. And then we die. And we leave every last bit of it to someone who won't appreciate it. Or the government who will squander it. And I'm going to tell you, you can have the most successful career and make as much money as you can dream of and have all the things you ever wanted in life. And when you die, the only two things that will matter will be, did you know him? 
and did you make him known? You can die the richest person on planet earth. And when you die, the grant the the ground at the foot of the cross will be level. The ground at the judgment seat will be level. And there will only be two things that matter. Did you know him and did you make him known? I would say that many of us, if not most of us, are living for popularity and prestige, especially if we're in the younger crowd. Some of you older ones are like, it's too late. I'm not going to be popular and I'm not going to be prestigious. I never made it on the big screen. I never made it on the field. But I would say a lot of you younger ones are looking to be popular, prestigious, whether it's on the stage, singing, whether it's on the screen, acting, or whether it's your new YouTube video going viral, or on a soccer field, or a baseball field, or a football field, or a basketball court. And I'm going to tell you, You can become the most famous singer, the most famous actor, the most famous athlete, and everybody know your name, and everybody wants your autograph, and you can die on top of the world, and when you get to the judgment seat, it won't matter how many movies you played in, how many hit singles you released, how many home runs you hit, how many goals you scored. Nothing will matter except did you know him, and did you make him known. That's it. Maybe you're not living for prosperity and possessions, popularity and prestige. Maybe you're just living for the pleasures of life. You just want the next pleasurable thing. Comfortable life, happy life. You can live the most comfortable life. Avoid all illness, avoid all sickness. Avoid all gluten, all sugar. Eat only organic foods. Delay vaccinations. Wear your mask. Get your COVID-19 vaccinated. Whatever you want to do, and you can live the healthiest life on planet Earth. Refuse fluoride and still die with no cavities. You can have the most picturesque, comfortable, happy life, surrounded by children, surrounded by grandchildren, live to a ripe old age. And when you die, none of that will matter. You can die with no cavities, no cholesterol, no high blood pressure surrounded by your children and your grandchildren. And when you stand before Jesus, only two things will matter. Did you know him and did you make him known? Let us not, like the Jews, waste our vineyard Let us not waste what has been entrusted to us. Let us not waste our lives. Let's leave this field today knowing Him if we don't know Him. And let's leave this field today with the goal of making Him known with every ounce of our being. That is all that will matter in eternity. Do you not see how simple life can be? This is how simple life can be. Spend it to know Him and to make Him known. And you will not regret it in eternity. C.T. Studd in the 1800s was the most famous cricket player in all of England. And probably nobody here cares a lick about cricket. We fought the Revolutionary War in the 1700s. We don't play cricket over here, right? We play baseball. But you could liken C.T. Studd to the most famous Major League Baseball player in our day and time. And he hung up his cricket bat. And he set aside his cricket ball at the pinnacle of his career. And everyone called him a fool. 
and he hung it all up to go to China and to go to Africa and to go to India and to spend his life and be spent for the gospel. And he wrote this poem that we'll close with. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in His will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow. Thy word to keep faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done, and when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Father, help us to know you. And if there's a person under the sound of my voice who does not know you, in a real and personal and transformative way. I pray that you would convict them, grant them repentance, grant them faith, grant them new life even now. Help them to reach out to someone that they know, someone that they trust, that can point them to you before they leave this place. And God, we pray that you would help us to invest our lives, whatever we have left, to make you known. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.